0: But uh, this week we're, we're continuing in our sermon series of Being the Church for Battle Creek. We've been uh, focused on this since Pentecost Sunday, in which we looked at the Spirit infilling those Jesus followers. Um, and we're looking at what their lives have to do with our lives, what the early church has to do with the church today. And we've been working our way through the book of Acts. This is actually uh, week number eight in this series, if you believe it or not. Um, and as we start off, I, I want to point us to a moment before uh, Pentecost Sunday, a moment earlier in the life of Jesus, um, where he's, he's talking to some people about how hard it is for uh, a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And that's not him saying that rich people don't go to heaven when they die, it was more along the lines of somebody has all the material resources of the world and has all the power and status that comes with it, how hard it is to align yourselves under the reign and rule of God, right? Kingdom is a word, don't think geographical place, don't think like there's a a place on the map you can point to, but under the reign and rule of God. And so how hard it is for somebody who has all the comforts and all the power in this world to submit that, surrender that, to pledge their allegiance to another king, right? And so Jesus was just kind of commenting about that, and he said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle Right? Are we familiar with this? Then the rich man entered the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples heard this, and this is really where I want to kick off today. The disciples heard him say this, and they were worried. Because it's like, well, how hard is it to get into the kingdom of heaven? Like, this is suddenly more difficult than what we anticipated. And Peter's response, and I I, I love Peter. I used to not like Peter, um, just because he seemed that bold, arrogant. But now I just appreciate his straightforwardness. And he says, we've left everything to follow you. Like, they're worried about getting into this kingdom of heaven, this kingdom of God, and, and, and he's hearing how hard it is to get in and to enter into it. And now he's like, well, we've left everything to follow you. Like, there's no plan B. There's no safety net. There's no other, like, well, if this doesn't work out, we'll go enter another kingdom of God or something. Like, there, it was, we've left everything to follow you. And that wasn't an exaggeration. Like, if you're familiar with the stories of Jesus' earliest disciples, he called people away from their family businesses. He called people away from their jobs. He called people away from their homes. Um, he said some pretty hard things about, you know, uh, there was a man who wanted to bury his, his father before he left. He said, well, you either come or, or don't come, but, like, you got to make up your mind what you're doing. Like, there were some hard teachings in this. You either had to follow Jesus or not. At one point, Jesus saw some of the crowd leaving after a hard teaching. Some of the disciples that gathered because he was doing miracles decided following Jesus wasn't for them. And so they decided to leave, and he saw the disciples looking at the crowd that was leaving. And he asked them, he said, do you want to go too? And I don't know if he was doing that with sarcasm or if it was just like permission, like if you want to go, go for it. I I don't know how to interpret that particular phrase. But the disciples responded by saying, "Where, where would we go? Like, we've left... Our old lives behind. There's nothing to go back to. And so we realize as we look at the disciples following Jesus in these early days that following Jesus wasn't something you could do in your spare time. It wasn't like a hobby. It wasn't something you could kind of squeeze in on Tuesday afternoon, right? It was kind of an all-or-nothing type of endeavor. Following Jesus wasn't... a call to fine-tune a few details in your life, maybe cut back a little bit on something or add a little bit more of something. But it was a radical abandonment uh, of the way that they were living and grabbing hold of a completely different way of living. If you're driving down the highway, it wasn't, well, I'm going to change lanes and speed up a little bit. It was, I'm going to take this off-ramp and get on a completely different road that leads to a different place. Right? The church from the beginning was known as this call, an invitation, a community that invited us to live completely different lives under the kingship of Jesus. It was radical. We've left everything to follow you. Where else could we go? It was a huge commitment, but somewhere along the line, and uh, it's hard to point out a specific moment in time but somewhere along the lines things changed in church culture. For one church received a position of respectability in society and also desired a position of respectability. We just don't want to be weird. like We don't want to be oddballs. We we want to be seen as good people in our culture. And so over time, you know, Christian history is 2,000 years old. Over time the Christian life has moved from one of a radical commitment and allegiance to this king to an emphasis that probably is more on balance, moderation, temperance, comfort. Christians, after all, are respectable citizens in their communities, right? Um, we're pillars of the community. We have, you know, the great leaders. There's status. There's something to being a good citizen that is interconnected with being a Christian, right? And so along the ways, the church lost this revolutionary edge as it became more established in the mainstream culture. The original followers of Jesus lived radical and even dangerous lives. And somehow, following Jesus went from, we've left everything to follow you, to, I'll try to participate and seek things of this world, but maybe I'll tone it back a little bit, right? I'll pursue the comfort that money brings, but not to the excess that it would be viewed as greed, because that would be bad. I'll seek after success, recognition, status, but not to the extent where it could be seen as selfishness or self-centeredness. I'm going to find this balanced position, this managed position, moment, this, this situation that's a, a sweet spot where I fit just enough faith into regular life that it just exists that way, and I'm kind of comfortable, maybe even safe. And so today, I want, as we, we dig into our scripture, to look at why the early church was persecuted. I mean, we talked about that a few weeks ago, the stoning of Stephen. From day one, Christians were targets of powerful people. They were viewed as threats. And so we're going to look today at why they were persecuted. And, and when I say persecuted, I mean like arrested, uh, beaten, abused, tortured, executed, sometimes in most bizarre and painful ways you can imagine. And they, were, and they endured all this because they had been baptized into faith. When I'm talking about persecution, I'm talking about the powers of the world declaring war on these communities of faith simply because these people pledged their allegiance to King Jesus. And why did the early Christians find themselves at odds with these powers of the world? Like why did the Roman Empire care what these little pockets of Christians were doing? They didn't even know that they were Christians. Like they thought they were a weird group of Jewish people. Like it was a weird teaching that had moved into the Jewish community. and In some places, they didn't even distinguish between Christians and Jews. But they're like, what's, why did this little church show up on the radar of the empire of Rome? Why did the early Christians find themselves at odds with the powers of the world? They, they weren't being persecuted for being kind of committed to Jesus. They didn't get in trouble for adding a little bit of Jesus to the regular life. No, they were persecuted. They became a target for the empire um, because they were committed with their lives. It was radical and revolutionary. They weren't lukewarm. We heard a scripture a moment ago about what Jesus thinks about lukewarm churches, right? I wish you were cold. I wish you were hot. Be something. <laughs> Somewhere in the middle is nothing. Sometimes we we tell the story that they were persecuted because they were religious. Like their their faith in a god made them stick out. But in fact, the Roman Empire had a pantheon of gods. You could choose. It was a buffet. They were unique in the sense that they would only worship one god. Sometimes they were even called atheists because they wouldn't worship the Roman gods. But it wasn't because they were religious that made them stick out. It was something else going on here. And so if you have your Bibles or you have a Bible app on your phone or you want to follow on the screen, we're going to be in Acts chapter 17 verses 4 through 7. Just a quick story in the life of the early church. Acts 17, 4 through 7. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas as did a large number of God fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women but other Jews were jealous. So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace. They formed a mob and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are defying Caesar's decrees saying, there's another king, one called Jesus. Pray with me if you will. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for your word. Not only the words that show up on the pages of our Bible, we are obviously grateful to have the scriptures in our hands, that you have preserved them and presented them to us uh, thousands of years after the events that they detail. Um, But more importantly, we are grateful for your word made flesh, that your word on these pages can be quickened to life through your spirit, and it transforms and shapes us as individuals, and it transforms and shapes us as a church. We are grateful that you have gathered us together. May you uh, move freely in this gathering today. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So this is a story about Paul and Silas, and they would travel, like Paul's missionary journeys are kind of famous, if you have a, 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 any type of study Bible or anything like that, you probably have maps in the back that have the routes and the different places that Paul would go. You can still go today, and uh, some places in Turkey and Greece and stuff, you can go and visit the churches that... Uh, Paul was a part of starting, or Paul visited, or he taught at, or wrote letters to. The letters in the New Testament are often addressed to these churches that he either started or had relationships with, right? And and so, as Paul and Silas and his other people would travel from city to city, they had a kind of a standard operating procedure. Um, Paul tells us that um, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile, and that wasn't just a some sort of spiritual principle; that was their practice. So, for the first three days first three Sundays that they were in a new city, they would go to the synagogue. And they would take the Jewish scriptures and present it as a gospel presentation about Jesus. They would point out in these scriptures the hope of a Messiah. They would point out in these scriptures the hope of a Messiah who was going to suffer, who was going to die, and who was going to be raised to new life. Now, most Jews didn't have that expectation. That was not the messianic hope, right? Their hope was for a Jew, for a, a Jewish person, person of, of lineage of King David to come and be a military ruler or to be a new king that like, kicked the, the empire of Rome out and reestablished Israel as an independent nation. Right? They really didn't have an understanding that Messiah is going to come and die. Like That seems counterproductive. Um, and so Paul and Silas and others would take the scriptures and point out the different ways, kind of like what we do at Christmas time and at Easter time, where we, we read the Old Testament scriptures, but we point to how this is a, hey, this is this foreshadows Jesus. This points to Jesus. This is what they would do. So they go for three three Sundays in a row at this new city, and the scriptures tell us, as we started in verse four today, it says some of the Jews were persa- persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. So they were gathering some reception. Some people would respond, but after the three Sundays, then they would go and just preach and proclaim it and it's some some Gentiles would come and be a part of their their communities their churches there but said there was some people weren't happy about this though right like so the the church seemed to be in a pretty good spot right so this is the church um, in Thessalonica is where this event happens um, and the, the scripture that we read a moment ago mentions a man named Jason So we're in this Roman city of Thessalonica. This is outside of Israel. And Jason, the accusations go, are hosting, are welcoming Paul and Silas. So he was probably wealthy enough to run his own uh, home, like a large home, and uh, Paul and Silas could stay with him. And it's possible, although not 100%, but it's possible that the church met in Jason's home. It seemed like an obvious Place for it. So it seems like this church in Thessalonica was off to a good start. Paul preached in the synagogues, got some response from the Jews and some God-fearing Gentiles. They had a nice place to stay. They maybe had a church meeting place in Jason's house. Things were off to a good start. But it says not everyone was happy with this. There was uh, some Jews that weren't happy about this. And they worked up a mob. And this mob went hunting for Paul and Silas, right? So you got a, a small group of people that didn't like the way things were going, and then they went and got a whole large group incited into anger and out, outrage, and they went to go find, and who knows what would happen if they found Paul and Silas, but they didn't, they couldn't find them. They found Jason, and so they drugged Jason to the city officials. And the, the accusation was that these Christians were causing trouble all over the world. They were defying Caesar's laws, and they were proclaiming a new king. Well, that'll get you in trouble, right? One translation of the Bible says that they were accused of turning the world upside down. I like that translation. (laughs) These Christians were going all over the world, turning the world upside down. They were being accused of nothing less than treason against Caesar because they professed allegiance to a different king. To King Jesus. Now these are big accusations, right? Like this is a big deal. Like, in the most powerful empire in human history prior to the arrival of the United States, the most powerful uh, you know government military force in the history of the world, and you're being accused of treason against them. It's it usually doesn't end well for you. It seems hard to imagine, though, that this would be the case. Are these Christians, these churches, really violating Roman law? Are they guilty of treason? It's hard to even wrestle with this question. At least it was for me initially, because my view of Christians is that Christians are good people. (laughs) We're good citizens. Churches are filled with good people that know the law, know what it means to be a good citizen, a good member of society, and we participate. Christians are respectable so it's hard to imagine a church that that was a community of people who were actively working against the ruling powers of the world that were committing treason Were they really guilty of treason Were early Christians guilty of upsetting the established world order I mean that's an important question I will tell you, they were guilty of being a community that saw their citizenship not belonging to a kingdom of this world, but to a kingdom of God. They saw their citizenship as being in that kingdom. Why were these early Christians persecuted? They were persecuted because they were viewed as being radical, being revolutionary. They upset the status quo everywhere they went. That's what the The story tells us these Christians that were causing trouble all over the world have now come here, right? Oh no, they're in our backyard now. What are we going to do with these folks? These Christians refused to be shaped by the patterns of this world but were continually being transformed into the image of Jesus, their king. They were radical in their faith and they were radical in the way that they lived. And I know some of you may be thinking ra- radical revolutionary these are these are big words. they could even be understood in the church as bad words. I mean we say somebody or something is radical when it's too far to one extreme or another. It's n- usually not a term of endearment it hasn't been since the eighties when we said things were radical and, and meant it was good but now radical is like uh, something's Wrong, it's too far, it's gone off the rails, it's too extreme, it's it's out of control, it's it's radical, it's aggressive, it's a threat. Same thing for revolutionary. We don't think of churches as revolutionary. Right? We haven't declared war on anybody. We're not trying to take down governments or take take over land or like yeah. revolutionary is a hard word. It sounds chaotic, it sounds out of control for church. Many of us probably are uncomfortable hearing those words attached to the church 2,000 years ago. And if you aren't uncomfortable yet, um, if those words don't make you uncomfortable, um, they're about to. (laughs) Ready? Battle Creek First Church of the Nazarene is getting ready to be a radical church. (laughs) what's pastor up to, right? (laughs) First church is going to be part of a revolutionary movement in our community. Uh Uh-oh. You, me, together, we're going to turn the world upside down. (laughs) Cindy's over there cheering, but I think many of us are getting nervous. (laughs) Some people are starting to sweat a little bit. Some people are already texting the board. <laughs> you all brought this guy here. You need to do something about this guy. Some of you are just wondering what I'm going to say next. Why were the first Christians persecuted? Because they were radical. They were revolutionary. But not in the way... No, I didn't, I didn't answer what I was going to say next. Um, they were radical and revolutionary, but not in the way that we think about those words Frequently they weren't terrorists they weren't taking to the streets in violent mobs they weren't declaring war on anyone or anything they they weren't even trying to get their their own guy into the roman senate they weren't even trying to to you know gain power in the in the political world there they honestly didn't care much for it that wasn't on their agenda but they were persecuted because they didn't fit in with society and so, what made them so radical? What was so revolutionary about these Christians to the point that, like I said a moment ago, the emperor of Rome becomes aware of these little Christians, these little churches, and saw it as a threat to the point that he said, Yeah, let's go do something, send some soldiers, let's go kill these people. Like, how did churches end up on the emperor's radar? The early church was radical in one distinct way. They are radical in the way that they loved. They believed that loving Jesus is an act so radical that it can turn the world upside down. And so that's uh, what I want you to hear today. We have the first slide. Yes. They believed that they were supposed to love as Jesus loves. So that they could turn the world upside down. Right, this was the core of the early churches that we are supposed to love each other the way that Jesus loves. You can leave this slide up for a while if you guys would like. I know what you might be thinking, maybe some of you, maybe not. I don't know. I'm going to pretend like you're thinking this and then talk about it. Um, Love isn't a radical act, right? It's not revolutionary. Those two words don't go together: love and revolution. Love and radical. Love is simple. It's not chaotic. It's not complex. Love is mushy. Feel good. It's puppy dogs and rainbows. Right? We may not think of love as a radical act because for 2,000 years, Christian faith has shaped our culture. And so we, we at least know somewhere in our heads that loving each other is an important thing. Right? Like, this is part of what humans sh- should do. Even, even people who have never stepped foot in a church have some understanding of, well, I'm supposed to love other people. Um, our culture, whether we know it or not, or whether they name it or not, has been shaped to some extent by Christian history. But the Roman Empire, in which these earliest churches began, were, were structured in a very distinct way. When they would conquer new territories, they would establish the structure, societal structure, it was very rigid. There was very clearly defined boundaries. And the Roman Empire was based upon status. Like there was strat- stratified society, and you knew where you belonged, and that's where you, you stayed for the most part, and you didn't really wander up or down on the ladder. At the very top of this, this ladder, at the top of this pyramid, was the Caesar, the emperor, right? He was the top. Then underneath him was the, the senators. These were the people that wielded all types of political and, and ruling power. Underneath the senators were the extremely wealthy people. Underneath the extremely wealthy people were the average wealthy people. I we wouldn't call it middle class because they had more money than middle class, but wealthy people, but they weren't the elites. There really wasn't much of a middle class, so then you ended up with like working poor people. They got by by what they were able to accomplish in their homes and what they did, you know, their wages for the day. Then under the working poor was the very poor, and underneath them was the slaves. And this was the structure, and this was how Roman society operated, and there was clearly defined boundaries. Who had authority, who had power, who had um, privilege, who could sit at what tables, who could talk with who, like, the, whom, yeah, anyways, moving on, um, i not going to turn it into a grammar class, um, but there was very structured society. So, how was love radical in this culture? How did the love of Jesus turn the world upside down? Well, when love became the lens through which they viewed each other, when a gathering of Christians came together and met in the same place, they said, "It's love, God's love for you, that the lens that I'm going to look through." It changed everything. Agape, the Greek word we use to to talk in the Bible. Uh, about self-sacrificial love, like some of you know that there's a lot of different words in the Bible that are translated as love. In Greek, there are different words, but they all end up as love in English. Um, uh, The word agape is self-sacrificial love, the love of Jesus, the love of God, one where the one will lay down his life for a brother, right? Um, Christians didn't make up that word, but it wasn't used the way that Christians used it. And so even the word that they used to define love was radical, right, and revolutionary. The world had never seen nor could it understand self-sacrificing love. So let me ask you this question. In a culture where we say we love tacos, and we love videos and pictures of cats on the internet, and we love a piece of cake, and we love our spouse, and we love our new cell phone, And we love the recliner that we take our nap in. Do you think there's room for the church to define what love looks like as defined by Jesus? Do you think that the the church can enter into that conversation and say, We get that you call all those things love, but real love looks like what Jesus says it looks like? Do you think if we define love as the way that Jesus loved, it would be radical in our culture today? Do you think a Christ-like love could make a difference in your home or in your neighborhood or in your workplace or in your school, your family? Simply defining love the way that Jesus did is a radical act. It's revolutionary to say love is not a feel-good feeling about something. Love is not I get something from this so I kind of like it. But love is a self-sacrificial, self-giving love as defined by Jesus. It's different. It's transformative. But honestly, that's just the beginning. Christ-like love declares that everyone is equally valuable. right? So keep in mind the backdrop of uh, the Roman stratified society, all the different tiers, status levels, if you will. And here the Christians come along. And people like Paul say, In Christ, there's no Gentile or Jew. There's no male nor female, no slave nor free. We are all equal when viewed through the love of Christ. And again, this isn't a way of negating differences. This wasn't Paul and Christians saying, well, let's just pretend like we're all the same. No, what this is, what this is doing is elevating the lowest people in society up to a place where they say, you have value, you have worth, you have uh, dignity as a human being because God loves you. Right, so it's not a, it's not an erasing of differences. It's saying those differences aren't going to keep you from being loved by God or by us. The love of Jesus says that Caesar, the emperor, the ruler of the most powerful nation, most powerful empire in the history of the world, is the same. Has the same value, same worth as the lowest slave. That's what the Christian communities were saying at the beginning. And you can see why the ruling powers would get upset about this. It wasn't because, well, Christians go to heaven when they die. No, it's because they're saying these people whose whole lives were oriented around how much status, how much power, how much control do I have, are being told that this poor slave, uneducated servant person has the same value and worth in society that they do. It was a direct con- confrontation, conflict with the way their culture functioned. The early Christians were persecuted because they followed a king who said that love for each other was the foundation of our relationship to the world around us. Not power, not status, not wealth, not title, but radical self-sacrificial love. So again, I asked: do you think our families, our neighborhoods, our places of work, schools, All of that could be transformed if we began with the assumption, if we started with the conclusion that everyone was to be loved and treated with dignity, regardless of their status, their gender, their ethnicity, their wealth, education, or title, if we started from the place that says, well, God loves them, so we're going to love them. Would loving people unconditionally, regardless of the situation or circumstance, be a radical or a revolutionary practice in a culture that seems more divided, more broken, more isolating than ever before? Would committing to have love as our primary attitude towards others make a difference? Would loving people that we disagreed with, oh, I don't know, politically uh, be radical It's definitely different. (laughs) Would loving people who believed different things than you believe be radical? Sadly, you look at the history of the church, it's a history of the church pointing fingers and attacking people because they didn't believe exactly the same thing. So it would be revolutionary. Would thinking that each person we encounter has value and worth regardless of what labels they're associated with be something that could turn the world upside down? So the invitation today is love as Jesus loves. We can turn the world upside down for God. The radical love of this community declared that humility was a virtue. Right? And we kind of know that today, like boasting and bragging, uh, besides being one of my biggest pet peeves, like I really, yeah. Um, but like, Christian culture tells us that that's not really a a value or a virtue. Humility is the virtue. But in the Roman world, humility was viewed as weakness. Boasting, bragging, being confident, being a little arrogant. I mean, you could run into hubris, which was a, you know, way down the road. That was a big no-no. But... um, to boast and to brag in your own greatness. People would donate money so they could have statues of themselves built in front of public squares and all these types of things. It was a very proud culture. And these Christians showed up and started declaring that because of their love for each other, they were no longer going to be concerned about who was the greatest in their group. They were no longer going to rate and rank the members of their community. They no longer desired to be the best, to be first, to be the most recognized, the most prominent. They saw everything as a gift from God. They understood that it was God that gave them everything that they had. So instead of boasting about their achievements, instead of being concerned about being the greatest or setting themselves apart from the community, we have Paul saying things like, I only boast in my weakness. I only boast... In my dependence on this faith community, I only boast in my vulnerability and my need for God. To be a part of the church meant that it was no longer a competition for recognition, achievement, or status. Do you think in our culture that is hyper individualistic, where so many of us are taught to define our worth and our value by what we accomplish and the recognition we receive for those accomplishments? you think a life of humility would be a radical departure from a culture of bragging and boasting? We posture and position ourselves so others know how great we are. We are taught to seek our sense of value and approval from how impressive or unique our actions are. What would happen if we just simply abandoned the need to be the greatest and the best? What would happen if an entire community of people radically abandoned The rat race, played by a different set of rules. Instead of competing with each other, we loved each other. (laughs) How revolutionary! The first Christians saw themselves as a member of a new family, and that wasn't erasing their biological family, it wasn't trying to, to pretend like those things didn't exist, those relationships didn't happen, but they saw themselves as connected to a new family that God had formed together. And this family was created through baptism into the faith of Jesus Christ, and that family defined their lives. They believed that the relationships and the bonds of this covenant community was the result of God's shaping the world into the kingdom of God. It was a radical departure from the Romans' way of organizing households. It broke the norm of how power was was used over other people. It upended the way that the Roman world was controlled from this top-down hierarchy. Roman family was a power structure that ensured everyone would stay in their lane. But the church saw family as a community gathered together by God, formed by God, because of the love of God and the love for each other. And so in a society where meaningful relationships seem fleeting, where family relationships function sometimes out of convenience, sometimes out of necessity, sometimes family relationships don't function at all, in a world where we are great at breaking relationships but not quite as skilled at repairing, reconciling, and redeeming them, would a commitment to love others because God has gathered us into a family together be a revolutionary act? A world that says, I disagree with you, I get mad at you, I hurt you, but the Christians say, we are committed to working through it with love and grace because God has called us into community. Would that be radical? It's not our choice whether we're family or not. God has put us together. And it's not up to us if we break apart. So we have to work through it in love. Do you think that that type of commitment in love would turn families and churches and towns and cities upside down? Is that not a radical demonstration of love that would lead to true transformation? What if we committed not to walk away from those we have conflict with? What if we didn't pretend like there wasn't an issue or, or just leave that relationship behind, but rather commit to grow deeper into a relationship with them because at our very core is this belief that God created us into this community. Instead of it being our choice as consumers, I'm going to find a, a community that suits me best. But a radical belief would be that We're here because God has gathered us together. That's radical. That's revolutionary. Those are bonds that are tighter than, well, this was a nice place to go, but maybe next week I'll go try and join another group that serves me better. No, we're brought together. God has made us a family. And that was Christian love from day one. The early Christians were radically generous. This is the part that I still have trouble wrapping my mind around. Because of their love for one another, they gave sacrificially. The Bible says things like they had all things in common. That's a nice thing. It sounds like, well, they're just, they all had the same hobby. They both liked to, whatever. Um, but that's not what it means. It means they brought their resources, compiled them, and if anybody had a need, they shared them communally. They didn't want anyone to go without. They honestly believed that God use the church community to provide for those in need. And if that doesn't seem radical, let's all just take what we've got and bring it up here and pile it together. And if anybody needs anything, you can get it. You need a truck? Here's my keys. I need food for a meal. (laughs) Having a, a health procedure done? I need some money? I need transportation? Like, it starts to feel pretty radical you start challenging this sense of mine, yours. Merit. I earn this. I'm entitled to this. These earliest Christians were radically generous. Now, I was reading a book. They didn't always get it right. I was reading a book the other day that talked about how on Sunday services when certain people, the rich people, knew that there was going to be a special offering, they would skip out because they knew they were going to... <laughs> so they weren't great at it all the time. But the ideal was this radical generosity... Do you think being motivated by a love so radical that it pushes you past those boundaries of mine and yours would have an impact on our society? If we are more concerned about the other person receiving the love of God more than we were about defending what was mine. Do you think a culture shaped around obtaining and accumulating more stuff would see the radical selfless love of these early Christians as a light in the darkness? I think it's easy as Christians to look around at the world and say, of course it would be great if everyone loved like Christ in the early church. Man, if the world would just function that way, like looking out the windows of the church, looking out the doors of the church, saying, man, I wish they would get their act together and just love the right way. But I want to remind you that in the early church, these first Christians, they didn't expect the world love the way that Jesus loved. They placed that expectation on themselves. To live out the way that God loved in their community of faith. So the invitation for us today is to love as Jesus loves. Loving like Jesus is a radical and revolutionary act. It moves us beyond using our own lives as a standard. It goes beyond using our own experience, our own comfort level, our own experiences as the standard for how we should live, it moves beyond what is common and easy and comfortable, and it starts focusing our attention on the value and the needs of those around us. And that's radical. In a society, in a culture that says, me first, a community of believers that said, you first, would turn the world upside down.